Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to the first episode of Tudoriferous, a podcast all about the splendiferous people that lived during the times of the Tudors. This is a fortnightly biographical podcast that examines the lives of people living during the period from 1485, the Battle of Bosworth, to 1603, the death of Elizabeth I, with a little leeway on either side. If you have listened to Rex Factor, Totalis Rankium, Pontifax, Saga Thing, or Grim Reading, which of course you have, you're discerning people after all, you will have some idea what to expect from this podcast since it's an homage to that format. We've nicked it, in other words. But if you're not familiar with the Rex Factor format, this is what we intend to do. We've chosen getting on for 200 subjects and we keep adding to the list and we're open to suggestions for more. Fascinating people from the Tudor era that we will draw out of a hat completely at random. We'll look at their biographies, strip them bare, gnaw on their bones and then rate them under the following categories. Which, by the way, we've given names that would have been recognisable to the people of the Tudor era. Amphiboly. That's intrigue. How devious were they? Did they form cliques, factions, and plot in darkened corridors? How much were they prepared to do someone else in to get their own way? Amphiboly means a sentence that can be construed in two different ways, exactly the way people were talking. Antiperistasis. That's rise and fall. Did they start in the gutter and make it to the court? Did they start at the court and end up in the gutter? Antiperistasis is perfect. It means a contrast in circumstances. Martyrdom. A word recognizable both the Tudor era and our own. Were they prepared to die for their beliefs? Did they carry on their ceremonies in secret, hoping not to be caught? Or did they cave in at the first sign of trouble? Batim. This round is posterity. Did they leave behind a legacy that still resonates today? Did they do something that has a knock-on effect throughout history? Batim itself means grant, bestow, concede, or indulge with. Flaunt a flaunt. <laughs> My favourite. Flaunt a flaunt means flauntingly displayed. This is our portraiture round, and how is a portrait not flaunting? We'll be looking at the portraits of each of these characters to see what we can learn from their clothes, stance, accessories, and to try to decipher any hidden clues that may be lurking in the picture. Then we'll decide, Are they too delicious, or what? And at the end of each season, we'll take all the too delicious Tudors and pit them against each other. Why? Well, I've no idea, but it'd be fun. The seasons have been divided to cover the reigns of each Tudor monarch. Some of the characters will span two or more reigns. Those people we have most commonly plonked into Edward or Mary's reigns because there are fewer characters during their time, and we've tried to level those seasons up a bit. Finally, after we've done all that, in about seven and a half years' time, we will put the winner from each reign up against each other to find out who is the most Tudorlicious of them all. Covering so many characters will inevitably mean a certain amount of overlap, but that's pretty much the point of this podcast. The Tudor court was such a compact, incestuous little world that we'll be able to view all these people from several different angles. What they wanted to portray about themselves, how their friends and family viewed them, how their enemies saw them. We can observe them weaving in and out of each other's lives, marrying, fighting, conniving, flirting, giving birth, killing and dying through the long dance of the Tudor dynasty. By the time we get to the end, we should know them intimately and we should be totally enmeshed in Tudor life. We would like to thank those other podcasts we mentioned earlier for their help and advice in getting Tudoriferous up and running. Everyone has been very kind. Yes, we've shamelessly milked them for all the help we could get from them. 
You will notice some gaps in our list of tutors. That is because we won't be doing the monarchs and consorts in deference to Rex Factor. Besides, I don't think anyone could cover them better than Rex Factor. If you're interested in these characters, don't fret. We will point you in the direction of relevant episode for a full dose of Rexy goodness. And we won't be ignoring the monarchs. They will appear somewhere in virtually every episode. Well, the Tudor era holds our fascination like no other time in history. Why do you think that is? Oh, for me, it started with the clothing. <laughs> I got into costumes and I have four books on Tudor costumes and history or costumes, clothing. And then you've got how many things changed. Like it was a constant wheel of fortune, as most of the historians used to call it. Like the wheel of fortune turned. You'd be up top one minute and be in the gutter the next. Yeah. How about you? Um, I don't know. It's it's. It's such a different time, isn't it? It was so brutal. Yes. I think if we were to go back now, I think it's the brutality that that would shock us most. Yeah, for fun, they used to put animals against each other to the death. I, I was thinking today, actually, do you think that Henry VIII is the first monarch that we can psychoanalyse? We know enough about him and his inner thoughts. And That's a really good point. Because if you're looking at the people that we have been looking at, I mean, reading about Henry VII so that we're well acquainted with this time period, mm. very little is actually known about him personally. There's no writings, whereas Henry VIII, all of a sudden you have a ton of source material. Yeah, and it's the same for, you know, the ones who come after him, mean, Elizabeth. I mean, especially, especially Henry VIII. I mean, you can't stop psychoanalyzing him, can you? I mean, he's, no. a, he's a suitable case for treatment, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I agree. We'll get into him much later. Season one of this podcast will look at the movers and shakers of the period 1485 to 1509, the reign of Henry VII. In this, our first episode, we're going to look at Henry VII's era as a whole. What led up to his reign? What was the state of England and Europe at the time? How did Henry conduct himself while he was in power? Everyday life, diet, clothes, health, etiquette and culture. Backgroundy stuff, if you will. Although Henry VII seems to be the forgotten tutor, he doesn't appear in a BBC program. The Tudors, despite being the instigator of the dynasty, he wasn't in the Tudors. There is no Henry VII in Shakespeare's history plays, and if you try Googling Henry VII, it constantly corrects you. Did you mean Henry VIII? No, you want Henry VII. This isn't at all fair. His reign saw many fascinating things. The marriage of Catherine of Aragon and Prince Arthur, did they or didn't they? the protracted marriage negotiations between Catherine and Prince Henry, the last battle of the Wars of the Roses, which is huge. Mm, isn't it just? Oh, it's a crazy. We'll be going into the Wars of the Roses a little bit. Uh, Lucy has done a ton of research, which is beautiful. It's on the website. The Pretenders, Lambert, Simnel, and Perkin Warbeck will also be covered. The first appearance of the Sweating Sickness, the Cornish Rebellion, France, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, the Papal States, Friend or Foe, and usually both. For a full rundown of Henry VII, listen to the Rex Factor episode, Season 1, Episode 35. In fact, I encourage you to listen. So here we go. The British Isles. At this point, England had been pounded and plundered under the Wars of the Roses for decades. 
civil war and changing loyalties to the temporary ruling monarchs and other countries left England in a precarious position, both economically and politically. Yeah, the 15th century had been an immensely chaotic time. From 1453, that's Henry VI's breakdown, to 1487, when Henry VII defeated the Yorkist challenge at the Battle of Stoke, the English crown changed hands six times. That's six times in just 34 years. Until the death of Edward IV, which was quite unexpected and appears to be due either to poison or his Epicurean lifestyle, at least three people were ahead of Henry VII in the line to the throne. Edward V and his brother Richard, that's the princes in the tower, and Richard III, who was descended from Lionel of Antwerp, that's uh, Edward III's second son. And we'll come across several other people throughout the podcast who felt themselves to have a better claim to the throne than Henry. Henry was fortunate, however, that the War of the Roses had wiped out a lot of the opposition, and many more had fallen victim to acts of attainder. These were parliamentary declarations of treason. The family would have to give up all their goods and lands, effectively making them bankrupt and no longer a threat. Now, how many peers were there in total at the beginning? Do we even know? And did it wipe out just the fam? Or sorry, did it wipe out the family or just the eldest brother of the family? Well, according to much maligned Wikipedia, before the war started, there were around sixty noble families, and by the end of it, the number had fallen to thirty. But other sources show that the great houses of England were in decline anyway. I mean, like the extinction of the dinosaurs, this may have been a more gradual process than was originally thought. But to understand why so many members of the great medieval families were killed, you only have to read what the Earl of Warwick, um, that's Warwick the Kingmaker, said following the Battle of Northampton. He said, No man should lay hands upon the king nor the common people, but only the lords, knights and squires. So they were being picked off deliberately. And there was no reason to think that Henry VII would last. His claim was very weak, coming down from the female side through his mother, Margaret Beaufort. Yeah, and wasn't the Beaufort line prevented from trying for the throne anyway? I mean, from my understanding of it, the Beauforts were descended from John of Gaunt and his mistress, Catherine Swimford. I mean, he did marry her and the children were legitimised, but the taint of illegitimacy was still there and they were barred from succession to the throne. So by rights, if I've got this right, Henry had no legal right to be there at all. Ooh, I looked into this because this was interesting. So the Beauforts were officially legitimized both from the Pope and in Parliament. But yes, that bastardy is still well known and everybody kept throwing it in their face. The interesting thing about them being barred from the throne was the barring was added later and only by a letter patent from King Richard II. And it never went through Parliament. Letters patent could be easily altered by the next king or by ruling in Parliament. It had absolutely no legal binding on it, the king's successors. Mm. The website, Royal Central, claims that Henry VI rescinded this barring in their article, The Illegitimate Royals, The Boilford Children, but I actually haven't been able to find any corroboration for that. But to add to these difficulties for Henry claiming the crown, he had lived in Wales for the first 15 years of his life and yeah. then was exiled in Brittany in France. So he's essentially an outsider. He probably only visited England once. He had no experience of government and lacked the connections that any of the other nobles in English aristocracy would have had. And without support from a web of powerful men, gaining the throne seemed well nigh impossible. Yeah, so unlikely. The English people had already deposed four of their kings in the last 300 years. Well, that was Edward II, Richard II, Henry VI, of course, and Richard III in case you're trying to work them out. If they hadn't taken to Henry, they'd have wasted no time in getting him out. Didn't Edward IV also get deposed by Henry as well, and then took the crown back, redeposing Henry VI? You could say that it's six kings. Then Henry VI got deposed more than once, didn't he? 
Yeah, that's true. Although Henry only had the crown back for a few months, when Edward IV deposed Henry VI the second time, he had him killed. Although it was officially said at the time that he had died of melancholy. Um, but people who die of melancholy don't drip blood on the floor of St Paul's. But however he died, it was very sad, because I like very few people in this era, because they're all, well, thugs, mostly, aren't they? But I do like Henry VI. I agree. And I was amazed Edward didn't kill him the first time, aren't you? It's not something I'd have done, obviously, but it would have saved him a lot of problems. I was actually very surprised, but then I suppose uh, the first time Edward captured Henry, Henry's son, also called Edward, confusingly, Mm -hmm. was still at large, so the Lancastrians would have just transferred their allegiance to him, a better bet than this poor old dad. Whereas if he kept the inept king, who couldn't control anything, Edward managed to retain control. Once Prince Edward was safely dead, King Edward would have no reason to keep Henry VI alive. Mm. In the back of his mind, Henry VII must have always been aware of the precariousness of his position and the fact that so many powerful people were willing to accept Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel shows that Henry couldn't really rely on people to back him. When you see the immensely elaborate ceremony of Arthur and Catherine of Aragon's wedding, which we'll hear about in the Arthur episode, you have to ask yourself, was he overcompensating because he knew how tenuous his hold on power was? Was all that extravagance necessary politically, do you think? Yeah, I think so. They all, um, he needed all the pomp and ceremony he could get to give his reign some justification, or some legacy. I mean, just who did this man think he was? I mean, everything was against him becoming king, and there was very little in his favour, except that everyone hated Richard III. Do you think he would have had a hope in hell if Edward IV had still been on the throne? I mean, the nobles flocked across the channel to where Henry Tudor was exiled because they were afraid for their lives, and that was that was Richard's doing. I mean, it, it could be said that Richard effectively gave Henry VII the crown. Yeah. Do you think that his hold on the crown could have been stronger if he had been less forgiving? I mean, Henry VII here. He was remarkably forgiving following Bosworth. In fact, Richard III vowed that he would crush all those who had sided with Henry because he believed that Henry would do the same if he won. Well, he didn't do that. But it's not always the case. I mean, he may have gone on to use fiscal policies to subdue his subjects, but he was pretty nifty with the axe too, especially against anyone who had any connection whatsoever with the Earl of Suffolk, whom we'll hear quite a lot about in this this season. And that included servants and even tradesmen. I mean, there was a piece of sort at the end of the 15th century, but that's largely because there's no one left to kill. (laughs) Good point. Henry's brother and sister monarchs were hesitant to enter into treaties with Henry, not knowing if he could hold the throne. I mean, look at the last 50 years before him. Mm. They're not literally brothers and sisters. He had, was something of a loner on the European political stage until he had marriageable children. Apart from Uncle Jasper and his mum, Margaret Beaufort, he was all alone in the world. At least that's the popular view. We did some digging, though. If you look at our website for additional information for this, this episode, you can see that we mapped out the family relationship with the other monarchs that he did have a connection with. And while he wasn't a brother or even a cousin, he was related to a number of the other ruling families as a second, third, or fourth cousin. What this does mean for Henry is that unlike the previous ruler, Edward IV, Henry didn't have any troublesome brothers vying for the throne. I mean, do you think that Henry VII was a good king? Was that the general consensus? Well, it had been thought until recently that 1485, that's Bosworth, was one of those decisive dates in British history, like 1066. Henry's reign has always been portrayed as bringing an end to the chaos, you know, a great unifier of a country torn apart by war, bringing peace and the glory that was the Renaissance and Reformation to England, the start of the modern era, maybe. But nowadays this is disputed. I mean, he'd been far too busy just shoring up his position to think about creating a modern era. Then he couldn't have felt secure until Perkin Warbeck and the Earl of Warwick had been executed. 
and Suffolk was safely behind bars. And that was 15 years into his reign. If all this sounds confusing, it, mm. don't it worry is. about it. It is, <laughs> yes. But each of these people will get their own episode. Um, so if you haven't heard of them yet, you soon will. There was peace during his reign, but that was achieved through the subordination of the nobles, which created an immense amount of resentment. I mean, he used several fiscal sticks to... Can you, can you have fiscal sticks? I don't know. Anyway, he used fiscal sticks to beat the nobility, which we'll go into in later episodes. He was quite a Machiavellian ruler. Didn't he backdate the Battle of Bosworth to imply that he'd been king on that day and that Richard had been the usurper? That way anyone who fought alongside Richard was automatically a traitor? Yeah, he did. And that's, that's pretty devious. I mean, amazingly, Parliament accepted it. I can only assume that some of them were keeping their heads down. You know, don't make too much fuss and he won't notice that we fought on the other side. But Henry got more dictatorial as his reign went on. In the first 15 years of his reign, 870 people were bound over in debt. In the last seven, it was up to 3,500. You know, this is his fiscal sticks. Well, what inspired the change? Well... His uncle Jasper died in 1495, a decade into Henry's reign, and it's thought that he was quite a restraining force on him, as Jasper himself was not a vindictive man by the standards of the day. I mean, obviously by the standards of the day, it's all very different, isn't it? And he may have instilled this into his protege Henry up to a point. Elizabeth of York, Henry's wife, had died in 1503, and his son Arthur in 1502, so that might have tipped him over the edge. Because he had everything set up. The wife, the heir, the dynasty looked solid. And then suddenly it's as though he's free-falling. He could lose all he thought he'd secured. I mean, his reign became less of a dynastic celebration and more dark and suspicious after this point. Right. And as I said, he, he got rid of his more vociferous opponents by then, so that in 1506, Henry was able to go after everybody with, with these fiscal sticks of his. Sir Richard Guilford, Baron Bergeveni, Thomas Grey, the Marquis of Dorset, Sir Thomas Green, Giles Lord Dobney, even the Stanleys, and Thomas Stanley was Henry's father-in-law. I mean, these were all people who helped Henry over the years, and they were hauled up in front of Henry's Council Learned in Law, as it was called, which was an extrajudicial. Here we go, which was an extrajudicial council answerable only to the king. Okay, I'm going to ask, what is extrajudicial? Well, outside the official legal system, and it was literally that. I mean, out of the blue, people would receive a summons to appear before Henry's Council Learned in Law. And then suddenly their lives became completely Kafkaesque. There was summary imprisonment until they agreed to pay large fines and more fines for pardons and then yet more fines for agreeing not to break the law in future. So they were thrown into prison without actually being charged with anything? Yeah, and there's no time limit since they were not officially being convicted of anything. And this financial web would completely entrap people and could be handed down to children and grandchildren. Oh my goodness. So, but that only happened to the nobility then? No, those lower down can find themselves enmeshed in this as well. I mean, it must have been a terrifying experience. And we'll hear some heart-rending and horrific examples when we do the Empson and Dudley episode. According to the London Chronicler, it said much sorrow spread throughout the land, which is, this is a pretty bad indictment of Henry's rule. Mm-hmm. The historian Terry Breverton described Henry VII as England's greatest monarch. Well, I just don't see it, do you? I mean, if we had a subjectivity round, my answer would be a definite no. Don't you agree? No, I wouldn't want to be there. No. Not at all. <laughs> anyway, British and European political shenanigans were notoriously complicated at this time, including something called the Mad War, as if all wars aren't mad. But we will try and make sense of the political environment one country at a time. Or at least Michelle will, while I have a cup of tea. Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, we'll start with Wales, Ireland and Scotland. 
So Henry's Welsh origins relieved the tensions in Wales, reducing the friction and fighting, allowing for a much more gentle ruling of that area of England. The Welsh had been really put upon over the 15th century, hadn't they? I mean, they were literally second-class citizens. They weren't allowed to own property or hold office in England or even live in towns without special dispensation. They weren't allowed to marry English people. I mean, there's not more resentment of the English by the Welsh these days. I'm quite happy there isn't. Oh, well, yeah. I live quite near Wales. It's probably just as well. <laughs> in 1485, England controlled only a small eastern portion of Ireland, but claimed in their title, the Lord of Ireland. This title could not at all have been accurate. When I say small, I mean really small. Uh, we got permission from Olivier to use his wonderful maps that he has on YouTube. His channel is called Cotterill. We will put up an image of the countries in Europe map of 1485 on our website so you can see just how little of Ireland was under English control. We'll also put up a link to his timeline map video. It's really interesting to watch. So it's just the um, pale of around Dublin, isn't it? So yeah. beyond, beyond the pale was, was foreign as far as English people were concerned. Yeah, it's pretty much one city in the surrounding area. It's mm. no bigger than that, but that's what they thought Lord of Ireland meant. Yeah, well, yeah, we're, we're pretty good at that. <laughs> <laughs> the relationship with Scotland was quite fraught. Scotland yeah. supported a man to be the future topic of this podcast, Perkin Warbeck, yeah. in his bid for the English throne. The failure of that bid led to a treaty with England solemnized with the marriage of King James IV with the elder surviving daughter of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, Margaret Tudor. You can listen to Rex Factor Season 2, Episode 40 to hear all about the deal from James IV's point of view. Europe. The remaining countries of Europe are more complicated. Um, as the monarchs themselves changed either throughout right of succession or hostile takeovers or just death, <laughs> you can go to our webpage at tutoriferous.wordpress.com to see a timeline chart showing the changes in rulers of European countries with whom England dealt. Most of the monarchs, dukes and doges, changed within the same year, so we rounded them up or down to the fullest year they ruled, just to make it easier to read. The countries with most effect of England were France, Spain, Burgundy, Venice, the Papal States, and the Holy Roman Empire. So let's delve in a little bit into each of them. And we're going to be doing episodes on quite a lot of these European leaders, aren't we? Yeah, so we can link them in. It'll be great. Mm. Okay, so France. Before Henry came to the throne, France had paid financial support and offered mercenaries to help him gain the throne. Sounds really promising, right? Mm. Nope. France's later aggressive expansion led Henry to jump into the Holy League with Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, in a dual attempt to gain back land France had taken and to support Italy, specifically the Pope, from invasion by France. Do we know how the French and English saw each other? I mean, did they see themselves as different from each other, given how linked the two countries have been for so long? Do they think in terms of English and French, or did the English see France as a place that was potentially English, but temporarily French? The history between the French and English is full of tension, with a myriad of royal marriages attempting to heal that breach. There are historical mentions of French towns held by England being more of a militant rule, since the nobles were English, but the townspeople were French. Oh, right. The militarization, yeah. The militarization implies that it's not really accepted by the townspeople. 
I mean, if they had to bring in the military, England at this time was also very insular and xenophobia was rife. <laughs> I can imagine that the French would feel the same. I mean, if I had people from another country constantly waging war in my country for ownership, I think I'd get very angry very quickly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I read one traveler who contrasted how foreigners were treated in Bruges, which is not France, admittedly, but he said uh, with consideration by everybody in London, where people, he said, where people look askance at us by day and at night drive us off with kicks and blows for cudgel. That's not the most welcoming. No. <laughs> okay. So Venice. Venice, at the beginning of his rule, Henry had diversified England's export countries to gain economic independence from the Holy Roman Emperor. Venice became the main destination for very profitable wool trade and a partner in the ever-profitable, slightly illegal, or should we say blasphemous, alum trade. Mm. Throughout Henry's life, Venice and England had an amicable relationship, at least. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. We were friends with somebody, at least. (laughs) One. Papal states. Henry relied heavily on papal authority for the validation of his rule. The money that Henry sent to the church both in England and in Rome was rewarded with papal support through both recognition of Henry's claim with papal bulls as well as papal excommunication of the rebels in England. Yeah, Henry often relied on payments to sweeten deals, didn't he? I mean, was was England wealthy compared to other countries in Europe? And I read that Henry was the only solvent ruler in Europe. Is that right? It it is. Mm. It is true. Uh, we'll go over a bit more on how he got that a bit later in this podcast. Yeah, well, the War of the Roses certainly helped. Definitely. That and there had been plague. Anyway, um, with the Papal States, there was only one rough spot, and that was the alum trade. We mentioned that a bit earlier. Mm. Uh, papal authority attempted to ban the import of alum from anywhere but the Papal States using religion. He claimed it was blasphemous. <sighs> Henry became heavily... I know, right? <laughs> shameless these popes aren't they very much so we will discuss those popes and i i believe we may have a few guest spots with uh brie and fry from pontifax when we start discussing the popes it'll be good Mm. but henry became heavily involved in the illegal trade of this critical resource greatly increasing his royal income off the books henry smoothed all this over with appropriate submissive messages and disavowing his direct involvement and every so often pushing over a bribe Oh, Henry, that was that's a lie. He was in it up to his neck, wasn't he? Yes, he was. <laughs> so why was the alum trade so important? At this time, alum was the only substance that could fix dyes in fabric. If you wanted your clothes any color other than the natural color of the wools, you required alum. Hmm. Fashion and clothing was just as big then as it is now, so demand was high. Yeah. Since the demand was high, the price was also high. Henry made a great deal of wealth by selling alum on the sly. Hmm. Burgundy is the next big country that he had a weird relationship with. (laughs) Burgundy, Henry's relationship with Burgundy was more based on personal animosity than on England itself or politics. Margaret, the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy, was Richard III's sister. And while she did not rule, she had considerable influence over her step-grandson, Philip the Handsome of Burgundy. Margaret worked hard to ensure there was support for any attempt to remove Henry from the throne until 1496, when the signing of the Intercursus Magnus, a commercial treaty, was signed between Philip and Henry. She was a woman who could really bear a grudge, wasn't she? Mind you, Henry had effectively killed her brother, I suppose. 
Just going to say, well, she might have had some reason for uh, eating a tad miffed with him. Just a little bit, yeah. especially since when we get to her point, we'll find out just how close she was with her brothers. Really? Yeah. At the beginning of his reign, Henry had diversified his markets for English cloth to other countries. This allowed him to enforce a trade embargo against the Low Countries, Burgundy at this time, drastically impacting the Burgundian economy. We could put a map on the website showing where all these places are and who owns them, since it's all over the place at this time, isn't it? It really is. The map from Cotterow's YouTube channel will be on the website. With It'll be a great reference to our listeners. And then if I put the timeline right below it, you'll be able to see who owns what. Yeah, okay. As Margaret's influence diminished, Philip was able to enter into that treaty and reinvigorate the Burgundian economy. This became a long-lasting partnership for the remainder of Henry's reign. I think I remember reading that the Burgundian court was second only to King Arthur's, so presumably there was money knocking around, or were they all living on credit? It seems to be quite a bit of credit. I think the reference to second only to King Arthur's was more fashion style and culture. Mm. Everybody was trying to take, like, Burgundian architecture was used in England. Burgundian fashion was followed in Venice. So I think it was more that than any money. Right. So why did Margaret's influence diminish? What was what's going on there? Uh, well, when Philip inherited the ducal throne, he was underage. His mother was living in the Holy Roman Empire, and Margaret essentially had enough influence to be considered or seen as a regent. Philip came of age at this time, and Margaret lost influence. It was also further eroded as her land holdings declined. Oh, I can't imagine she took that too well. For how much she gets involved with everything, no, I really can't either. She's not one to take a back seat, I wouldn't have thought. Nope. Now that we've mentioned the Holy Roman Empire... The relationship with the Holy Roman Empire was contentious through almost all of Henry's reign. The rulers supported every alternate claim to Henry's throne, supporting them with either money or just providing a haven to the exiles. There were only two moments of non-aggression, during the Holy League in defense of the Pope, and later when Henry paid Maximilian £10,000 to eject the Earl of Suffolk. I mean, that's £10,000 then. I mean, we haven't uh, modernised it. That, that is the amount he handed over. It's roughly about fourteen million pounds today mm. that he handed over just to try to get the Earl of Suffolk. Well, that was quite a big chunk of, of the English economy, wasn't it? It was, if we don't include the alum trade. <laughs> <laughs> well, but he but he wasn't anything to do with the alum trade. He's already said oh, that. Oh no! Oh yeah, <laughs> he's totally denied it. <laughs> Um, the funny thing is, is though he gave that £10,000, Maximilian did eject the Earl of Suffolk, but only from the lands which he directly controlled. This didn't include the lands of the independent dukes within the empire, so he just shuffled them off to a different area. Maximilian was able to take the money while still supporting the exiles by sending them to lands that he didn't control. Mm, that's a bit sneaky. Suffolk's going to be a big character throughout this first season of Tudoriferous. He became something of an obsession for Henry, didn't he? Yeah, very much so. Mm. I think mostly because of how much support he had from the other monarchs to mm. try to take the, the throne back. Next, we have Spain. Spain and England maintained their ally status throughout the entirety of Henry's reign. That doesn't mean it was smooth, but they did remain allies. Mm. Henry mm -hmm. needed Spain to recognize him as king of England and to marry his heir to a Spanish infanta to bolster England's standing in European politics. Well, that's Catherine of Aragon, and we'll be hearing a lot about that saga. It has a knock-on effect throughout the entire Tudor dynasty. I mean, just think, mm -hmm. if the Pope had refused permission for Catherine and Prince Henry to marry, I mean, how different history would have been? Ooh, have <laughs> remained Catholic. Yes, yeah, that's what I was thinking. None of this six wives malarkey. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
Spain needed England's men for their war against the French. They didn't get the support that they wanted, but at least they needed to ensure that England did not take France's side. Yeah, that's important for them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if all of this seems a bit confusing, who is making alliances, who is falling out, we will be covering the European rulers in their own episodes. So you should end up knowing more about it than you ever thought possible or necessary. But it will be interesting. Yeah, I mean, for the uninitiated like me, I mean, it just looks like a mess. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) It felt like a mess when I started. Now it's quite crystal clear. (laughs) Uh, Everyday life. This is where my biggest interest lies, is everyday life. Henry became king at the perfect time when we talk about economy. England had just begun its recovery from the plague, as well as the agricultural depression of the 1300s. The population was beginning to grow again. It was not until the mid-16th century that the London population returned to its pre-Black Death level. I mean, that's despite sweating sickness, influenza, and further bouts of plague. Economically, raw wool prior to this had been a chief export, but the economy shifted to the processing the wool into cloth and then selling the cloth. Some sources suggest it contributed to 80% of the legitimate economic income. I say legitimate because alum trade was not a recognized income. Alum greatly increased the crown's income. Just to give you an idea of the money that was made in the alum trade, a single shipment of alum is recorded to have net the crown 15,166 pounds. That equates approximately to 10 million pounds today, 17 million for Canadians. England may have been small, but it was becoming vastly wealthy. Yeah, you can see where he was able to get his hands on 10,000 quid really now, can't you? Yeah. It's dangerous though, isn't it? Relying on one thing, just cloth. I think the reliancy was more that depending on what was available for export at that time. Just trying to think, actually, what else we would have had to export? From what I can find, no, copper and tin, but most of the mining had been exhausted by this time, at least for the technology they had to pull the the minerals out of the ground. Mm. The other thing with the economy and dealing with wool was more women and children in England also became involved in the cloth trade, in spinning and weaving, adding additional income for the family that was previously unavailable to this extent. Cloth is important to understand, was extremely expensive in this era. The majority of agricultural workers would only have one exterior outfit with perhaps two sets of underclothes. Instead, English residents paid money for cloth to other countries. Those prices were now paid into England from everywhere else. Hmm. It's quite difficult for us to understand that now, isn't it? The idea that you'd only have one set of clothes. I mean, if we were inexplicably whooshed back through time, I think we'd find that hard to adjust to, wouldn't we? Uh, Very much so. I mean, my closet is full. (laughs) (laughs) I look as if I've only got one set of clothes, but I do. <laughs> I try to put the cost of clothing in perspective. Um, people left their clothes to relatives and servants if they were close to them in their wills. There were sumptuary laws that prevented people from a lower class wearing finer clothes, and the writer of the will would know that. They would also know that used clothing was so valuable that it was pawned and sold regularly. They were, in essence, giving a lower class person cash. There are several sources of accounts that items of clothing were pawned for large amounts of money and were later reclaimed. But do you think there's an argument that the time between the Middle Ages and maybe the early 20th century is more similar to each other 
than, say, 1900 to the present day. I mean, at least in the West. Right. Disposable income and decent hand houses have become, uh, well, I don't want to say the norm because some people fall below that level, but it's certainly inconceivably more prevalent. I mean, somebody, I forget who it was now, said that if you were to ask anyone during that time, apart from the pampered gentry, of course, what their idea of utopia was, I mean, their answer would be pretty much a description of how we live today. Enough to eat, even in the winter, decent shelter, free from the threat of war and summary plunder by noblemen. Again, I'm talking about the West. Not everyone's as lucky. And yet people, people are no happier now, are they, than they were then? Maybe that's a link. No, I don't think so. That's a lengthier discussion than we've got time for, perhaps. Another time. <laughs> That's a very lengthy discussion. I'd love to have that, though, but on another day. In short, I think it, you know, I think it entirely depends on the exact year we're talking about. If you were discussing years directly before the plague, where people couldn't find work or food, the difference was drastic. Mm. In 1485, though, wealth was increasing, and with the population decline from the plague, there was more work available. Yeah, yeah, this is a much bigger discussion point. <laughs> so there was a silver lining even to the plague. For the people who survived, yeah. Because clothing was so valuable, the government even created sumptuary laws, which I mentioned earlier. These were not new and had been around for centuries. These laws upheld a strict hierarchy of who in what class could wear what type and color of cloth. It was important socially in a world where your status dictated how people were to treat you. A person could know exactly what class, institution, or trade you were in just by what you were wearing. To wear clothing that was of a better class than you were was not only illegal, but your friends or colleagues would think you were quite snobbish and you'd be ostracized. Mm. We should also note that there is evidence of clothing that was for a higher class person being worn by a slightly lower class. These clothes could have been bought, used, or passed down to a servant. Keep in mind that servants were of all classes, and this was hard for me to get my head wrapped around. Duchesses were the servants of the queen, for example. The queen could and did give her gowns, with the jewels removed, to their servants. This passing down would continue until the clothing was unwearable. The lower classes would be able to wear a, that garment because of the wear on the clothing. That wear would also be indicative of status. I, I seem to remember when Perkin Warbeck landed in Ireland, he was spotted by those who thought they could use him for their own ends because he was wearing clothes that were way above his station. He was, he was a lowly deckhand, I think, wasn't he? He was flouncing about the, the streets of Dublin in colourful silks. Yeah, I read in one historian's book that there are some claims that he was actually a fashion model for people selling clothing. Really? <laughs> yeah, but I haven't found that anywhere being repeated. But they did use it in an episode of a 1970s BBC production called In the Shadow of the Tower. Mm. And they mentioned that he was a clothes horse. He was a person who just sold clothing because he was good looking. Goodness, you don't think yeah. of that as the time, do you? I mean, you might think of that as later Tudor, maybe, but... Yeah, that's why I, I think that may not have been true, but it was really interesting to read in a couple of historical books. Mm. Well, sorry, but they were both referencing this very same source. Yeah. And I didn't see that anywhere else actually being affirmed anywhere. No, I just assumed he you know, he liked a bit of bling. He liked, he liked wearing it himself, but... Yeah, so did I. Yeah, when we're talking about people wearing specific clothing... Uh, so much business was actually agreed upon based on the wearer's clothing. A tradesman would not even think of denying an aristocrat. He may not have known the aristocrat by name or reputation or even if they had any money, 
but the clothing would tell the tradesman who he was dealing with. Even tradesmen of specific guilds wore specific garments, and no one was, that was not of that guild could duplicate the look. So was this ever used fraudulently? People pretended to be something they weren't. Yes. <laughs> there are cases in the court rolls all over the country of people wearing illegal clothing to make a deal fraudulently. It's one of those surprising facts you learn when you look at source documents, like how many causes of death were written down as teeth. Oh, yes, yes. Um, yeah, Queen Elizabeth was suspected of being poisoned when she was ill, and it was almost certainly tooth-related. Yeah, it's not something you think about now. No. <laughs> oh, as someone who suffers from toothache from time to time, I can... Oh, dear, you just don't want to think about it, do you? I mean, thank God for... No, no. Thank God for um, paracetamol. <laughs> I was thinking Advil. <laughs> Circling back to alum. The colors of cloth were also restricted, so bright and vivid colors that were hard to make and were hard to make fixed into the fabric were the purview of the rich and noble. Paler colors were for everyone else, but colors were regularly worn. We seem to have this thought in our head of it was only black and white for the Tudor period, but it really wasn't. Yeah, certainly for the early, earlier Tudor period, you think of it as being quite, quite dull. Yeah, you would think. I think part of that is the fact that we talk about the richer people. And they wore black, but black was the hardest color to fix besides purple. Mm. So the wealthier you were, the more you'd want to wear that color to show how wealthy you were. Mm. And for the poorest people, the cloth's natural neutral colors were all that were affordable. Unless they bought used clothing, this would be the only time they could afford their to own colored cloth. I wonder if people felt constricted by this or whether it was just so inbuilt that no one gave it any thought. Hmm, I think both views. There's evidence of both views. Uh, you have people getting into trouble for wearing improper clothing in the court rules, which shows that some people must have chafed at the rules. The laws themselves say that there was need for them. I mean, you don't put in a law that somebody hasn't violated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've heard that quote saying, where you get crime, you get a law. Yeah. So it, it the act happens first, and then a law is created. Um but people were also brought up to know their place and to find contentment in it. I mean, it was part of their religious teachings. Yeah, that's true, yes. Yeah, I'm supposing just like now you have people content with their life and those who are always trying for better. better. Mm. And also partly to stop people bankrupting themselves, buying costly clothes that were way above the station. Uh, yeah, I think we have this idea of what Tudor clothes look like, but really we're thinking about the late Tudors, aren't we? I suppose clothing at this time would have been essentially medieval. Yeah, you're right. It was in a transition. At the time of Henry VII, both men and women actually wore gowns. Men would also at this time wear a doublet and hose beneath their gown, but would not remove it unless doing physical activities. And the length of the gown was also dictated by class. The longer the gown, the more money you made. There are examples of paintings that show lower class men wearing what looks more like a coat than a gown. It would come down to mid-thigh. Whereas the upper-class men's gowns would ostentatiously drag on the ground, showing, you know, I have the money to keep the cloth that's really expensive dirty and have it cleaned. That's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Women's gowns' length were more circumscribed. Hmm. Uh, the lower class would have ankle length to prevent the gown from getting dirty, since they were also walking through streets where horses were, you know, going yeah. to the bathroom. So you didn't want it touching the ground. Um and they also had so few changes of clothing that they needed to be able to wash them. 
Upper-class women, however, had trains, not really long ones, like I'm not thinking Princess Diana's wedding dress, Mm. but they did touch the ground and they did drag on the ground and it was almost showing that they could afford to have their cloth damaged and washed multiple times. Yeah, imagine as a common folk watching these people flouncing about with their clothes dragging through the mud. I mean, what would you have thought? It comes back to a couple of quotes that I've read in some contemporary historians mentioning that people looked upon their gowns with awe. It's like looking at a teenage boy seeing a Lamborghini for the first time. Mm. That's what I started equating it to, just the amount of wealth that was on display just from one item of clothing. And then on top of that, they also covered themselves in jewels that they would actually stitch into the clothing. So you'd have pearls and rubies and and sapphires and upper-class noblemen wearing them on their clothing, and they would lose them. That was regularly mentions of people losing. Oh, I lost my ruby somewhere over there and sending a servant to go see if they can even find it. Yeah. <laughs> I just find that mind blowing. Yeah, I mean they were must I mean did they did they walk through the streets wearing this? I mean that it, Yeah. I mean you wouldn't have pickpockets, you'd have people just picking things off your clothes as you went past. Pretty much. Or picking it off the ground. Uh, Terry Pratchett mentions it in one of his books where People go through the sewer system to find gems and coins and stuff because it was falling out of people's clothing. Another thing to consider at this time is that garments were actually tied on using laces at this time. There were no zippers yet. And buttons, though they had been invented during the Roman times, they were very little used in the early Tudor era. Clothing was still being washed by being beaten on rocks and creeks and rivers. Buttons would be damaged or completely destroyed in the process, if not cut off the clothing first. So this made them only available to persons wealthy enough to afford to pay somebody to cut them off, then sew them back on the clothing after being washed. And presumably this this is the same with um, all the jewels that were sewn into it as well. So you're talking about possibly hundreds of... And there's quite a bit of evidence that clothing was actually unsewn so that different parts of it could be washed in different ways and then sewn back together after they had been washed. You could take the sleeves off, couldn't you? Yes, you can. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it was laced on separately. So if Mm. you're looking at some of the portraits, you'll see, you can see the lacing on the arms so people could change arms with the doublet or the kirtle was separate from the rest of the gown so that you could mix and match trying to make your clothing look more varied. Mm. That was also another way to make it look more wealthy. Mm. Uh, Another thing to consider is that buttons... I keep going back to buttons, but I couldn't believe how much wealth and status was in the lowly little button. Quite often, buttons were only used as decoration rather than as a method of attachment because they were so expensive to create. And because exterior clothing never touched the skin, uh, that was usually where you found buttons because it would stand a long time before requiring washing. Hmm. Tudors would also use a brushing technique to clean outer garments that's quite effective that would allow for buttons as well. There is a ton of history. Uh, A fascinating source for this kind of information for cleaning, especially, is um, Ruth Goodman's How to Be a Tutor. Love that book. Totally recommend her as an author. The climate was pretty similar to how it is in England at the moment, with hot summers and wet winters. There seem to be a lot of storms. Every time someone tries to cross the channel, there's a storm. Mm-hmm. I read that it took Henry VII two weeks to get across the channel. But then on another one, it said two days. So I don't know. I don't know which. 
It depends when he started off, which was which is in contention. The channel does seem to be pretty good at keeping people out. And, and uh, Philip of Fergundy, yeah, he, he came a cropper in the channel, didn't he? And ended up being washed into on the British side. Yeah, they crashed, basically. They had a shipwreck. As far as diet goes, labourers would not often be able to afford more than pottage, which is basically cabbage soup with barley and oats and maybe a little bacon. As their incomes increased, labourers' living conditions and diets have improved steadily. Um, since the Black Death, there had been a trend for labourers to eat less barley and more wheat and rye and to replace bread and their diet with more meat. It sounds so boring. does a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No biscuits. <laughs> I love cookies. <laughs> the nobility ate pottage too. But this might contain almonds, ginger, saffron and wine. I, th- I don't like the sound of the wine in it, but I think that's because when I'm reading pottage, I'm thinking porridge, and I'm like, why need a porridge? But pottage is a very different thing, isn't it? But yeah, wine doesn't sound appetising in in pottage. No. <laughs> Estimates suggest that the Tudor Nobility's diet was 80% protein, which sounds like a hell of a lot. I mean, even when you take into account that the lives of the even the elite required far greater calorific intake than necessary today. I mean, houses were extremely cold with no carpets or curtains. And the only. I'm just, I'm just cutting them too much slack here. I mean, we haven't got carpets. And um, so, <laughs> the only source of heat was a fire. Well, our only source of heat's a fire. And they travelled on horseback and foot. But they didn't have any insulation in their walls. That's true. Yes, that's true. And unless you were extremely wealthy, you didn't have window panes. No, mind you, we've only recently put insulation in ours. But anyway, I mean, 80% is excessive, isn't it? I mean, it really is. And that's meat protein. It's not. Yeah, there, there was, soybeans didn't exist for no. them to eat. There was no tofu. But I mean, it, do you think the amount of protein in their diet was a factor in the numerous accounts of people suffering from gout in the nobility? Oh, almost certainly. I looked up foods to avoid prevent getting gout, and it said <laughs> one, red meat. And I, sc- I scrolled down the page, and that was the only thing on the list. Oh! <laughs> but that was what your average Tudor noble, I mean, if there is such a thing, was eating most. Yeah. Uh, wait, what type of meat did they eat? In researching Henry VII, I noticed the, the constant references to hunting. Everybody was hunting. Mm. So, I mean, did they ever eat beef, I wonder? Or was it just the fact that you were eating hunted meat? Well, the poor ate whatever they could get their hands on. Rabbits and pheasants and ducks and chickens that passed laying. I think blackbirds even, you know, little songbirds ate. The rich ate swan, peacock, wild boar, venison. Yeah, so they are not don't seem to be mainly farmed animals, do they? I mean, they seem to be. No. Mostly. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the filthy rich, like the court, I mean, food is not so much about eating as displaying. I mean, the more exotic, the better. Oh, and if, uh, when they did the peacocks, I watched one show that showed that they cooked a peacock and then put the skin back on mm-hmm. and put gold on the beak and they presented it with all the feathers i was like oh that sounds so gross it does. Oh. <laughs> no well i wouldn't have lasted five minutes in judah times <laughs> <laughs> you don't eat meat <laughs> no <laughs> i would and i eat very little yeah Mm. I, I, maybe 5% of my diet is meat. It's almost mostly vegetables and grain. Well, you're not going to get gout then, at least. No, thankfully. There was strict observance of fasting on Fridays and Saturdays and sometimes Wednesdays too. But fasting didn't mean going without food altogether, just, just avoiding meat. And Lent, eggs and dairy foods as well. So everyone went vegan for Lent, although obviously there was, there was no quinoa or tahini. 
So fasting really didn't mean not eating at all. I, I thought for sure that's, huh. I guess that's my current time periods thinking of fasting. Because now when you think of fasting, you think of not eating at all. Yeah, you think more of like Ramadan, sort of waiting for the sun to know. I think yeah. it, it, it sounds like a lot of cheating, really, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. We're going to say you're not eating, but you can eat all this yes. stuff. <laughs> it's like pretending that um, yeah, that fish isn't meat. So you could eat it on a on a phone. Yeah. I'm... And I read that somewhere that puffins were oh, deemed puffins. classified as fish so that you could eat puffins on no meat days too. I'm not sure how many, how many puffins you're, you're going to come across most of the time. I don't know, but that was in a book I was reading about how popular they were. Well, maybe they were more numerous. You can't eat a <laughs> puffin. puffin. Yeah. And as far as I know, you can only find them on Lundy Island. And that's just a tiny little island in the British Bristol so Channel. Cute. Yeah. <laughs> One thing we might want to talk about is etiquette. Mm -hmm. uh, contrary to what you would expect these days, several travelers to England commented on how much kissing went on. Whoa. You were meant to kiss the entire family when you arrived, they said, and then again when you left. And the most scandalous part of this was that you kissed them on the mouth. Given that there was no teeth cleaning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One chronicler actually marveled that they did not seem to think that this was obscene. And when you think about right now with COVID. Yes, I know. Wouldn't dream of it, would you? I mean, up until recently in England, I mean, kissing was seen as something that flamboyant foreigners did. I mean, we gave people a curt nod or shook hands, you know, if they're lucky. <laughs> and that's totally the opposite of the Tudor time period when you were just walking in, kissing everybody. Yeah. Well, it's good. We've got a lot more kissing. Well, not me necessarily, but English people have got a lot more kissy recently. I mean, not, not in COVID. No. We have got a lot more huggy and kissy, I've noticed. I like hugs. <laughs> It was also recorded by travellers that if a man gave a woman flowers, she was obliged to wear them for three months, and that should the man find her without them, he could exact a fine, so that you would see these women draped in flowers what? all over the place. I, I can imagine it wasn't a financial fine. It was probably something a bit flirtatious, like a little kiss or something. Oh, but for three months, like, wouldn't they rot? Oh, wait, maybe they dried them. Oh, possibly. I just imagine these people trailing rotting vegetation about with them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This... Walking compost heaps. <laughs> Right, um, we'll talk about health, or not, as the case may be. I'm just going to tell you a little story. Ooh, tell me a story. Yeah, it's not a nice story. In 1493, two ships, the Niña and the Pinta, finally arrived back in Spain. They'd been sailing for nearly a year. They were greeted at the royal court with great pomp and ceremony. And the captain, a certain Christopher Columbus, was given oh, a... Oh, nobody knows him. No. <laughs> Lost to history. <laughs> he, was, um, he was given the title Viceroy of the Indies. The Indies. But he didn't. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, well, if you're going to nitpick... Um, they brought back parrots, bizarre fruits and spices, gold, and a strange illness never before seen in Spain. Several members of the ship's crew started suffering from strange pustules or warts, which started off on the members of the ship's crew and spread to the rest of their bodies. <laughs> oh, that was very politely put. <laughs> this was followed some time later by effects on the bone, shortening and bending. Later, oh my God. Oh God. later, there was a degradation of the soft tissue, particularly the cartilage of the nose, and finally madness and death. Cases began to appear at alarming rate around Spain. 
Its arrival seemed to have come with Columbus's first voyage, but its spread was blamed on his second voyage. He brought back natives of both sexes, um, but doesn't appear to have looked after them very well. Men of the women ended up working in bawdy houses or brothels, where it's thought they infected their clients with this new disease, which was at this time known as Las Bubas, but today known, of course, as syphilis. We are such a kind species. I'm going to take you away from your home and your loved ones and put you in a brothel. This is not one of our finer moments. No, I mean, I wish we knew their names and we could do episodes on them, but, you know, they're... Um, Well, the disease was known in the New World, um, but there it manifested itself in much milder form. But on its arrival in Europe, however, the symptoms became absolutely catastrophic. It was generally thought to be the wrath of God or a misalignment of the stars. Oh, man, people have been debating the origin of syphilis for decades. Mm. Uh, There was one resource that I was reading about Pompeii, totally off topic of what we do now or what we're talking about now. Uh, But they said that they found evidence of two women with syphilis in Pompeii, which was, of course, eons before the Mm. Tudor time period. There are some people that say, no, 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 but we did find evidence of it in parts of Europe, but it was a much less virulent strain. And then you get everybody else saying that it came from the New World. Nobody actually, I think, knows. But there are some pretty interesting uh, scientific research being done on the DNA of syphilis to track its its origins and mm. even then they're talking about it being from three or four different places so i don't know if we'll ever have a full answer of where that came from i mean i suppose it could have come from various places couldn't it i mean it's it might have or something similar yeah i mean we've got a number of different diseases like well we're in the middle of covid right now how many strains are there yep yep so it could just be something as simple as that Hmm. Well, in 1497, the disease reached England. Famously, famously, the disease was treated with mercury, a popular treatment for skin conditions since 1300, including mercury-soaked underpants. (laughs) Sorry. And in fact, inhaling the fumes while applying the mercury cream could well be fatal, both for the patient and the doctor. Well, at least you're cured. (laughs) (laughs) Cured if you're dead, yes. Yes. It's been suggested that Henry VIII might have had syphilis, but it seems unlikely since it would have shown up in his children. There's no evidence of that, is there? No, and there's no evidence of his skin having lesions. I think think it's it's the leg ulcer. Oh, the leg ulcer, right. That's a single lesion. It's not... All over the face and the body, and his nose never eroded. Yeah, and it's not usually found in legs anyway. I mean, it's the soft cartilage stuff rather than, yeah, muscle. Right. Um, Yeah, anyway, I'll give you a word of advice. If you want to avoid nightmares, do not type syphilis into Google Images. I mean, it is is horrific. Duly noted. Mm. I mean, you actually get lesions on the bone. I mean, anyway. That must have been so painful. The things we don't have to deal with now in our lives because we have antibiotics. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yes. You get a dose of syphilis, you're cured instantly. Yeah. But you're probably best not getting it until... And a clap it. Or influenza, another disease affected by the influence of the stars, made its first appearance in the 1480s. So, you know, it's amazing there are any people left. Art. 
The early Tudor period was one of isolation from European trends. At the start, the War of the Roses greatly disrupted artistic activity, which apart from architecture had reached a very low ebb by 1485. I mean, not to mention England's seemingly endless wars with France. That too. I can't imagine Mm. art was a priority when everybody's dying of the plague. No. It's interesting to note that a book entitled Renaissance Art has only one paragraph on England in the entire book, and that begins... In England, there had not been any native painters or sculptors of exceptional artistic importance (laughs) who rose above technical craftsmanship. I praise! (laughs) (laughs) If you look at inventories of the time, you'll see that plate is rated very highly. But paintings are pretty much rated at the cost of their raw materials, and the skill of the artist is barely a consideration. Henry VII didn't have a Holbein or a Hilliard to capture the likeness of the court, so maybe that's... Why it seems a little bit of a more nebulous time. Yeah, that makes sense. We don't have anything to see because there was nobody there who could create it. I mean, when you look at Holbein's paintings, you can you know the people, don't yeah, you? Yeah, he definitely gets... A, the character comes across in his paintings, not just hmm. the picture. Uh, one thing we should mention is plate. I, until we started seriously researching this time period, I didn't realize they actually meant plates. <laughs> like dinnerware. No, I assumed it was something something a bit more than that. <laughs> it totally isn't. It turned out that plate was huge because lighting was so bad that they would do these beautifully designed gold and silver plates so that light would reflect off them and keep the room bright. I have I found that out in one of my readings because I was like, what is plate? So I had to research it thinking that maybe it was this unique art form. No, it's actually your dinner plate. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why we eat off gold plates, you know, saving electricity. <laughs> Yes, very much so. <laughs> uh, back to portraits, sorry. During Henry VII's time, portraits were moved away from stylized images towards actual likenesses. You know, who would have thought? The camera obscura, literal translation, is a darkened room. This was used with a person sitting outside or in a brightly lit chamber while the artist is in a darkened room or tent with only a single hole in the side facing the subject. The light bounces off the subject and onto a canvas that is on the inside of the camera obscura, allowing the artist to trace it. It places the subject in color upside down on the back side of the canvas. The artist then outlines the face of the subject on the right side of the canvas. Um, While it did produce a greater likeness of the face, it often ended up with a fisheye appearance to the face. It also led heads to being much bigger or larger in proportion to the bodies if the person was an unskilled artist. So was it an early photograph? I mean, the only difference being that they couldn't keep it, not without drawing it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. The very first cameras where it did put it onto a piece of paper were exactly the same things. And people can do it themselves. They can make a little cardboard box and put photo paper in there and punch a hole and go take a picture of something. Yes, you can. It takes a little while, but you can do it. Yeah. Yes, you have to stand still for about 10 minutes. (laughs) I really like the fisheye look. Um, You know there's something strange about them, but it's, it's quite difficult to pinpoint. They seem to have been squeezed in at the chin, and the top of their head has sort of ballooned out, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly the same principle. Uh, yeah, if you look up Margaret of Burgundy's portrait, which eventually we will get to her, she has really, really big head and forehead, and the rest of her is a little, little, little <laughs> tiny person. Well, the big forehead was very fashionable, wasn't it? Yeah, it? I, I read recently where they shaved it. I, I, I can't imagine shaving my head to make my forehead even bigger. It's weird. <laughs> Um, if we're not talking about 
painting, then we go on for sculpture. For sculpture, the majority of the artists were imported as well. One of the most famous is Pietro Torrigiano. Pietro Torrigiano. His more notable sculptures for us are the effigies on the tombs of Henry VII, Elizabeth of York, and Margaret Beaufort. They're beautiful work. I have a personal dream of seeing them one day in Westminster Abbey. But yeah, I have seen I've seen them on film, and they are stunning. Yes. Music. Well, all the, all the Tudor monarchs were musical. M- playing music was much more common in those days because that's the only way you could hear music was <laughs> yeah. either play it yourself or there wasn't much mentioned for Henry the Seventh, but some sources say he was very proficient on the harp, which was more of an Irish instrument, but it was popular in Wales at that time. No, you don't. Yeah, you don't hear much about the harp, do you? No. I've got visions of him now sitting down to the, one of these great big pedal things. It was a smaller harp, apparently, a much more simple one harp. One you put on your lap. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's telling that if you click on early music of the British Isles on Wikipedia, it's split into medieval music to 1450, and then Renaissance music section starts with Henry VIII. Oh, so we're missing 50 years. <laughs> mm, it's a pretty bad indictment for culture in Henry VII's reign. Mm. But do you think that was also a result of the constant warfare? Well, it can't have helped, can it? But the other explanation, Henry VIII, the lad himself, the man has so much to answer for. The Reformation hit all art hard, including religious choir books, which is where we get most of the information about music of this period. And in fact, only two survive today. One's at Keyes College, Cambridge, and one's at Lambeth. There's a Lambeth choir book, which is in Lambeth Palace. So there could have been tons, but it was destroyed during the... Well, all choirs would have had one, I think. You're right. But they're huge. Um, I mean, this one's the size of a paving slab, and it took about 100 fat sheep to make. Oh, my goodness. But they made them big so because the whole choir would share the one choir. Right, bit. so they could see it. Okay, that makes sense. Well, this sort of music wasn't meant not to sit and listen to it. It's a sort of backdrop for prayer and to put you in the right frame of mind. It's not something you enjoyed for itself. Okay, so it wasn't the popular time, music of the time, people sitting in chambers and singing to each other. No. Okay. But Richard III had shown a great interest in music and had increased the choir in the chapel royal by sending out scouts to steal singers from other choirs. <laughs> yeah, and people say he's not a bad man. He's stealing choir boys now. <laughs> I didn't realise this before I started looking into, into this for the podcast, but English music at the time had its own colour and it was very different from anything that was being produced on the continent. Between 1450 and Richard's death, there was an explosion of musical composition I don't know if Richard's death had any significance here, but that was the date, dates given. Hmm. I wonder if Henry VII was too busy trying to keep the crown to spend time being a patron of the arts. And with all the nobles, as you mentioned, being held under such punishing fines, maybe they didn't have the money to be patrons either. But you wouldn't have thought Richard would have had a lot of time on his hand, would he? I mean, it wasn't exactly a peaceful reign. True. Around 1450, the low bass came in, and in the 1460s, the trebles were taught to sing very high. This is purely English, the high treble, alto, tenor, baritone, bass. Really? And obviously, it's what we would consider the norm these days. But throughout the um, 15th century, there was something called the English countenance, which used lots of thirds and sixths, as they said, to sweeten the harmony. Not so many bare open chords as you'd find in continental composers at the time. You can hear it in the music of Dunstable, but I couldn't find any music that wasn't covered with by copyrights that we could play here, so um, listen to it on YouTube. But yeah, British music was very influential, or English music, I should say, really, was very influential on courts in, in the continent, particularly Burgundian court. And it may not mean much if you're not into music much, but it was a huge change. I wonder if England was that influential musically again until the 1960s. Ah, oh, the Beatles! 
<laughs> John Brown wrote mystical and innovative settings using deliberate dissonance, and you can hear it in Starbuck Matter on YouTube, sung by the Talis Scholars. And sometimes when you hear the music of this time, there are some harmonics that sound, sound as if someone sung a bum note to our modern ears. But it's a difference in tuning then and now. And in later episodes, we'll be covering composers like Talis, Dowland and Bird. That was the music nobility was listening to, right? I mean, well, yeah. what do you think the common yeah. people were listening to? Well, street ballads mainly, I think, which are interesting historically because they tell us about what the everyday person was thinking. They're either long narrative tales or they're reflective events of the day, and they could be satirical. They were the private eye of their day. Ballads of Henry the Seventh's time included the detestable legend of John Baptiste Grimaldi, and he was the head of the London branch, the Grimaldi Bank. And the Ballad of Empson, that was Henry's hated facilitator, which was written you know, after Empson was in jail. Oh my gosh, I wonder if the singers ever got pegged with rotten fruit when singing that ballad. Or was the ballad negative about him? I think ballads are as a song of praise. I couldn't find the words to the Empson song, but I should imagine it was entirely negative because, I mean, he was in prison, so they were quite safe to sing it. Yeah. Um, I looked at the Bodleian Library Ballads Online site, but it only had two for Henry VII's reign. The first one was called Oh, Warring World All Wrapped in Wretchedness. <laughs> the Tudors loved themselves a bit of misery, didn't they? Yeah. Um, right, should we go on to drama? Yes, please. Well, there's the Endtown plays, as they were called. They were a cycle of 42 mystery plays on biblical themes performed between 1450 and 1500. And the Endtown referred to a point in the manuscript where the word Endtown was to be replaced by the name of the place where they were performing. <laughs> You know, it's a bit like bellowing, are you ready to rock, Yeovil, <laughs> at the beginning of a gig these days. So they're obviously performed all over the country. Mm, the real golden age of English drama is still a century away, though, isn't it? The sort of thing people mm. were watching at this time would have been familiar to people more throughout the Middle Ages, wouldn't it? Oh, I think it would, yeah. I mean, the term mama, to mean amateur actor drawn from the community, comes from the Middle Ages. But the first evidence of the plays comes from the 18th century, so we can't really be certain what the mama's plays of this era were like. Right. Literature. Mm -hmm. In 1425, the first Guildhall Library was opened under the will of a certain Richard Whittington of Turnagain, Turnagain fame. And if you're unfamiliar with him, as you probably are if you don't live in England, I'll direct you to Grim Reading's The Three Sons of Fortune, that's episode 62, for an account of his story. But he seems to have been a busy boy because he also opened a hundred bed hospital. Oh, nice. Although I'm not sure what kind of care there would have been there. Leeches well, and cutting yeah. and... <laughs> Yeah, it's a nice thought, though, isn't it? <laughs> the thoughts there, <laughs> even if it was probably rife with infection. Yeah. In 1450, Gutenberg had set up his movable print press, which obviously led to huge changes. And this was brought to England by Caxton. And thanks to Caxton, a literary person in Henry VII's London could have read the Canterbury Tales, Aesop's Fables, oh. the Mort d'Arthur, the Book of Marjorie Kemp, Robin Hood Ballads, Dante's Divine Comedy. And in 1487, they could have read the Malleus Maleficarum. Oh, gosh. Yes, a horrible witch-hunting manual. Yeah, you know, light reading. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've just bought a copy of on Kindle, but I haven't braced myself to read it oh, yet. <laughs> I should imagine it's horrible. One thing I loved about reading about this time period was discovering Winkin de Word, the printer. I've been a huge mm. fan of Terry Pratchett since I was like 19, so that's now decades. <laughs> <laughs> uh, discovering the inspiration for William DeWord and his novel of the truth was for some reason such a joy to me. <laughs> 
But I wonder, since printing was just getting started, what was the literacy rate of Henry VII's reign? I can't imagine it was high. It depends what you mean by literacy. There were gradations of literacy. I mean, early modern literacy is not the same as ours, where effectively you can either read or you can't. Some people learned to read but not to write. Some people wrote without being able to read. You could have beautiful, beautiful calligraphy, but not understand a word that you were popping down. You'd just be recreating an image or a pattern. You wouldn't think of it as a word. Hmm. Okay. Unlike many aspects of Tudor life, and indeed all of history up to quite recently, reading was much more of a communal activity than it was today. People gathered to be read to. On the whole, Protestants were more literate than Catholics, presumably because they could read their Bible. Right. I did read that the goldsmiths, the mercers and the ironmonger companies ordered its members not to take on apprentices unless they could read or write. So perhaps literacy was more widespread than we, we imagine. Oh, it would be so hard to give 100% of an answer there. I'm not sure how you'd test it. I mean, the only thing you could go with is whether people could sign their name or not. You know, you can copy that. Yeah. Or you could learn yeah. just to sign your name and nothing else. Well, I think that should cover more than enough information to give our listeners enough background to make sense of the time. We hope you've enjoyed our whistle-stop tour of England and Europe and Henry VII's reign. Most of the people mentioned will get their own episode as well as many, many, many others. We'll have a list of all the movers and shakers from Henry VII's era who've got their names on cards. And we have decided to draw the names out of a hat. <laughs> I was going to use a hat, but I don't have a hat that big. Uh, I have a box. I've got a bowler hat. I was going to use the bowler hat. Oh, you've got a hat. Nice. I, I found they were, we have too many names. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will be using two hats or boxes because I mm -hmm. shall be randomly picking the characters that Lucy will cover and she'll be picking the ones that I do. And given that I live in British Columbia, Canada and Lucy lives in Somerset, England, we're not in a position to share a box, even if COVID restrictions allowed it. Right, we're now going to draw the names of the first two people to get Tudoriferous episodes. Unlike the rest of the Rex Factor podcast family, Michelle and I are going to take it in turns to present episodes on these characters. Michelle has volunteered to go first. <laughs> so I'll be picking the name. So a big moment. Our very first name out of the hat. So next, yeah. So next time, Michelle will be doing... Margaret Beaufort. Margaret Beaufort? Really? Yeah. Margaret's probably the best person you could have pulled. For those that don't know, Margaret Beaufort is Henry VII's mother. This is perfect. Ooh, this is a good time to mention that some of the people we'll be discussing will actually go beyond our timeline range. Um, Margaret obviously was born prior to your son's accession, and others will outlive him. So there is a bit of overage on either side of that specified range. But wow, that's, that's awesome. Okay. Well, the only thing I know about her was how, how old she was when she had her, <laughs> had Henry. That's one of the few things anybody knows. <laughs> okay, my turn. I get to pull out for Lucy. Okay. okay. Hold it here. Okay, Lucy will be doing... Jasper Tudor! Okay, well, that sounds okay. <laughs> You're less excited. <laughs> well, he's not someone I know much about, so it'll be fun to learn about him. He's an early one as well, isn't he? So there should be a lot of crossover between yes. him and Margaret Beaufort. No, I think we're off to a good start.
Well, I think we're off to a great side, especially with those two, because they even interacted with each other quite a bit. So it'll be a neat crossover between the two. Yeah. Mm. Well, get used to the idea of the the podcast being, you know, uh, the where. Oh, yeah. Let me think what I want to say first before I say <laughs> it. <laughs> we'll get used to the podcast. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> So, at the end of Michelle's episode on Margaret Beaufort, mm-hmm. we will draw the name of her next victim out of the hat, and then we'll go on from there, every two weeks for seven and a half years. Oh, my gosh. I worked out, <laughs> I worked, I worked out that we won't finish Series 1 until February 2023. And after that, on to the Stuarts. Oh, that'll be very cool. <laughs> we hope we've convinced you that Henry VII's reign, while not so well documented on film, TV, or novels, is just as interesting as his Tudor descendants. You can find us on Well, thank you for listening. And we hope you'll tune into our first real episode on Margaret Beaufort, mother of Henry VII. In the meantime, adieu. I have too grieved a heart to take a tedious leave. Oh, Harding is such sweet sorrow. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>